Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. I have two kids. Um, The youngest is going to be two this summer, and the oldest is going to be five this summer. Uh, I found one of the hardest concepts to teach my kids, really my oldest as she's growing up, is planning. The idea of thinking forward, trying to get her to consider more than just the moment that's right in front of her. We're finally getting there recently. I think a lot has to do with her ability to count. Um, But previously, trying to discipline Harper with taking away privileges for like two days or a week at a time had very, very little effect because she's had no concept of thinking forward, of planning. She just exists in the moment. How can I have the most fun right now? Our text this morning is all about considering a future context something we all do, something we've all been doing most of our lives. Going to college is a short-term cost to earn that credential to get the career you want. Saving money is a short-term sacrifice to build a down payment to purchase a house. We suffer and we struggle in the short term for a greater long-term reward. It's interesting, though, as much as we bring this attitude into various spheres of our life— We often, even as Christians, forget and neglect the eternal implications of our actions and decisions. This morning, we're going to explore a parable all about the eternal implications of our attitudes towards wealth, material wealth. We're continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke, and we're in a section where Jesus is giving wisdom and instruction to the Christian, specifically how to respond to the relational and material circumstances that we'll find ourselves in. Jesus is trying to, through this teaching, Jesus is trying to open his disciples' eyes to the eternal context of their souls. Last week, Daniel walked us through a challenge that Christians, through the centuries, would wrestle with. It's acknowledging Jesus or denying him. In the face of persecution and death, what would you fear? Would you fear, as Jesus says, those who kill the body? Or would you fear the one who, after he has killed, can cast your soul into hell? Why fear man when it is God who has dominion over your soul for eternity? And our text this morning is perhaps a little bit less violent than the death that persecuted Christians would face, but no less eternally minded. And this is going to be our thesis this morning, the big idea. Greed exposes a heart that is blind to God's eternal possession of our souls. Greed exposes a heart that is blind to God's eternal possession of our souls. We're going to see this in three points this morning. First, the mask of greed. Second, the heart of greed. And third, the death of greed. Jesus is concerned this morning with our heart's attitude towards material wealth, warning particularly against greed, against covetousness. So our first point this morning, the mask of greed. Let's read Luke 12, the first verse of our text, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So this teaching of Jesus on eternity and these implications and how to face the world in hard things, a man interrupts him. A man interrupts him with a a question or statement asking him to do something for him. The man interrupts Jesus with the word teacher. It's a word that implies respect. 
Jesus as, respecting Jesus as a religious teacher. He asks Jesus, the respected religious teacher, for help in dealing with an issue regarding the law, an inheritance dispute with his brother. Now, under the law, for these Jews, the inheritance of a father was to be divided among his children, and the oldest would get a double portion. And so in this case, a man with his brother, two men, the oldest would receive a two-thirds portion, and the youngest would receive a third of that. And it appears that this man's brother is not being fair in his distribution. And we don't know that for certain, but that's how it reads to us. He could just want more. He could just be wanting more than he already has. But the way it reads is this man likely isn't getting the inheritance that he rightfully should have under the law. And actually, this could have been a very reasonable request because the rabbi, Jesus, the teacher, would have a role in helping ensure that the law is held over both of these men. After all, this man just wants justice, right? If he doesn't have his inheritance that he, he should have, he just wants justice. But there are two problems here. First is the timing. This man interjects and interrupts Jesus' teaching on the scope of eternity with a question about finances. I'm, give me my money. Tone deaf a little bit. The second problem is, his, is that it's a statement. It's not a question. He's not asking Jesus for help. He's telling Jesus to help. And moreover, he's not just telling Jesus to help. He's telling Jesus to rule in his favor without any discussion, any dispute, any case for either side. He's asking Jesus for summary judgment in the middle of this teaching to the crowds, to his disciples, just telling Jesus to do something for him. We see Jesus respond appropriately in verses 14 through 15. But he, that's Jesus, said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, that's him speaking to the crowds, in response, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. See, rather than helping this man exact the justice he thinks he deserves, excuse me, he deserves, maybe using the idea of inheritance to pivot towards something more eternally minded, like, like the inheritance that you could have in Christ. Rather than that, he rebukes this man. He fillets him in front of the crowd. But what is covetousness? What is greed? What exactly is Jesus warning against by using this man and his statement as an example? See, the word for covetousness here, in other translations I went through, used the word greed. The intent behind the word means wanting more, wanting an excess, wanting an overflow of something. Almost exclusively, this word is used in regard to material things. So with our vocabulary shrinking as we consume more internet and more social media, (laughs) greed, I think, is a better word for us as we understand this text. And it will also make more sense in the parable that Jesus tells. Also, covetousness is a hard word to say over and over and over again up here. So we're going to use greed. So greed, it's the desire for more material things. So to further narrow our focus, Jesus also says in the second half of this of verse 15, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The word abundance is an overflow. It's more than necessary. It's more than needed. There is a clear distinction to be made between what is needed to live and survive and what is an overflow of abundance that we have beyond what we need to survive. See, starting in verse 22, right after our text, we're going to get into a section about anxiety and what it means to not have enough to survive. And Jesus is going to address that specifically. 
But this morning, we are, Jesus is talking specifically about wealth. That is more than we need, an excess, an overflow. So in response to this man, he gives the people and the crowds two verbs, two warnings against greed. He says, take care and be on guard. Beware and be on guard. Perceive and protect. See and contend with. So he gives us two, one to see, one to mentally think, to conceptualize, and one to physically do. He does this because greed is a slithering, deceptive, subtle thing. It quietly wiggles its way into our souls, often bypassing our defenses against sin because it's so easy to justify or obfuscate our greed. Like our inheritance-seeking man, we can hide our real intentions and approach God and approach Jesus with a maybe legitimate, for a maybe legitimate reason. But behind it is really a heart of greed. Recall Jesus is rebuking almost exclusively material greed. I think we can deflect an uncomfortable discussion about material wealth and materialism by lumping in more abstract ideas, like relationships, being greedy in relationships or our career, or being greedy for attention and respect. Rather than focusing on wealth of things gripping our heart, we can deflect and find other possible targets for rebuke. See, if our materialism is just one of many objects of greed, we don't have to focus on it. We don't have to think about it as much. Sin is deceptive, and few are as successfully deceptive as materialism. Greed can then slither its way, not unnoticed, but with a lighter hand than necessary. This is a mask of greed. We do have to make something else clear, that Jesus isn't warning against wealth. Jesus isn't rebuking wealth. Jesus is rebuking greed. It's not about an amount. It's about an attitude and the heart behind the one handling. That's our second point this morning, the heart of greed. Jesus rebukes the man, teaches on the dangers of greed, and tells a parable to make his point. Let's read verses 16 through 18. And he told them the crowds a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. This is a story of a wealthy man with a wealthy land. Land produces more than he can store or use. And he has a dilemma. Doesn't want what he has to go to waste. He needs a solution to this problem. So he begins to think one out. Just like the man that interrupted Jesus, this seems initially to be a reasonable problem that requires a reasonable solution. He's acting shrewdly when we read that, right? He's trying to figure out how to not allow his crops to go to waste. He's planning. He's trying to be purposeful and prudent with the way he's handling this abundance, this overflow of what he's been given. Bigger barns to store bigger crops. And so he does. And when he's finished... He makes a declaration. He actually, I think a better way to think about what he says next is he preaches a sermon to himself when he says, and I will say to my soul, let's read 18 and 19. And he says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. <clears throat> and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, 
and be merry. Like most sermons, there is a truth and then there is a command. Prosperous land and stored up wealth, rest and indulge. The problem for this man was not verses 16 through 18. A wealthy land, blessed to yield much, too much for his barns, a prudent course of action to reduce waste. The problem for this man was the 11 times that he says I or my in his statements. The complete self-absorption of considering no one but himself, including the God who made his land fertile, including the God who brought the rains, including the God who protected his crop from robbers and animals. In a profession more reliant than most on the sustaining work of the creator, it sure seemed easy for this man to forget who he owes his thanks to. But such is the power of greed. When selfishness, pride, and myopic focus on self-exaltation are given the keys to the car, the end of the road is a heart of greed. The heart of greed is one who does not consider anyone else other than himself. But most importantly, at the heart of greed is one who forgets the Lord. The symptoms of this heart are deep and profound. He says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. His selfish greed has given him this delusion that he has control over the years of his life. Yet again, ignoring the umbrella of, this, of a sovereign God. If this sermon he preaches to himself sounds familiar... It's because it is. And it would have been familiar to the Jews listening, the crowds listening to what Jesus was saying. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes 3, verses 12 and 13. Solomon says this, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. Words written by the wisest man to ever live, Solomon. And Jesus uses the words of this wise man to harshly rebuke this rich man's lazy retirement and his heart of greed. So how are these two things different? Solomon's words are ones of wisdom and glory to God, but the rich man's are a character of greed. How are they different? We just zoom out a couple of verses in Ecclesiastes 3, starting in verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everyone, everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Beginning of verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Where the rich man had 11 eyes and 11 eyes and eyes, Solomon, no less than seven times, acknowledges and attributes all of these gifts to the control, provision, and eternal dominion of God. See, there is room to enjoy the gifts of God, to take pleasure in the work that our toil produces. I mean, God gave us taste buds. Taste buds for the pleasure of taste. He could have made all food taste like tofu or even worse, artichokes. 
Bland and tasteless, God could have made us taste nothing, giving us what we need for sustenance to survive, but without the joy of savory, sweet, sour, without taste. See, the God-fearing heart embraces the gifts of God in all their joy, praising the Lord for his kindness and provision. But a greedy, hedonistic heart embraces the pleasure and gifts and makes them his God. Where the heart of greed forgets the Lord, a God-fearing heart will never forget. This leads us to our third point this morning, the death of greed. As Jesus concludes his parable, we see the result of this man's worldview and sin in verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The Lord's response to this foolish man, this man will die, and in a moment, a singular moment, all of his wealth will mean nothing. His soul will leave his body behind to decay along with all of his accumulated abundance. More wisdom from Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 18 and 19. No doubt in the mind of Jesus as he wrote these words or spoke these words. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. For what value does this man's wealth have when he leaves but vanity? In ignoring and neglecting God, this fool ignored and neglected the very real consequences of eternity. Somewhere he cannot take his abundant wealth. He sought to relax, to rest in this lifetime, rather than work and look forward to a more satisfying rest in eternity. See, we feel this mortality, this, of this fleeting shell. We feel it. I read an article in summer of 2020 when COVID happened. Um, I resurrected it when I was preparing for the sermon. Um, and as of the summer of 2021, There were roughly 500 people around the world who were cryogenically frozen at death. means their bodies were frozen. Some of them, their heads were frozen. (laughs) Frozen at death, all in the hope that technology and medical science would advance to the point eventually where they could be resuscitated and live again. There's a wealthy couple in Arizona who did an interview about this. They set up what was called a personal revival trust put $10 million in it so that when they're frozen and then when they come back, all that money that they have presumably been investing for however long it takes, they'll be some of the wealthiest people in the world. Absent an eternal perspective, the excesses that you indulge, that you can indulge easily become your priority. And when the indulgence becomes your priority, this life is all you have. But what's, most, what's possibly most offensive to God here is this man's perceived ownership of his own soul. Recall our thesis this morning. God exposes a heart that is blind to God's eternal possession of our soul. That, little, that ambiguous final clause makes a whole lot more sense when we read verse 20 again. 
But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. This night your soul is required of you. That word required has much deeper implications than our short-sighted minds can often see. The, the point of the, the root word here is to ask back, to demand in return, to ask back what is due. So if God requires this man's soul, he is asking back what he is due. He is asking back what he has loaned out, what God already owns, what is already his. This man's soul, this man's life is not his own, it is God's. He is merely a steward of what God has granted him to care for. So how arrogant for him to take what God has given him and serve only himself. And not just that God has not just the life that God had granted, but the land where God actively provides for his riches. We are stewards over what little God allows us to rule. We are not little kings and queens of little fiefdoms to do with our lives as we please. Our very lives, our souls are a gift from God to responsibly honor him. Our rest, our relax is eternity with our creator. See, work was appointed to us at creation, and toil and struggle in work was a reality until that glorious day when we will rest with him forevermore. See, an accurate understanding of our eternal world will transform how we look at our finances and our material wealth. It is no longer mine, but his, to steward and use to the glory of Jesus and the love of my neighbor. There's a pretty correlative example for the rich fool's eyes and self-indulgence. It's retirement. At least our idea of retirement here in the West. And I want to be clear, I'm not talking at the end of our life, our bodies are going to break down and we're physically not going to be able to do or produce or serve or care for. We will be the ones receiving the care to the glory of God. However, retirement as we understand it in the West is reaching a certain stable financial situation through a pension, retirement, or an IRA, enough money to live and enjoy life without having to work. For almost all of human history, people worked until they couldn't, physically couldn't. There were some exceptions. For, it was almost always for military service. It wasn't until the 1800s that this became an institutional thing in Europe, and it wasn't until the 1930s where it became institutional here in the States. The idea that we should be working only the middle two-thirds of our life wasn't really a concept, except generally in the case of this man, the extremely wealthy. Now, I've seen recently uh, amongst people in my generation, younger, a dream, an American dream of retiring by 30, 35, or 40. The nine-to-five job is seen as indentured servitude to the system. Therefore, the goal is to have a stable enough income, a stable enough financial situation to retire as soon as humanly possible. This highlights a purpose-destroying, a purpose-destroying consequence of greed. That is the neglect of what is called the creation mandate. God placed Adam and Eve in the garden to work before the fall, before sin entered the world. God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Work the land, care for, and steward the planet. See, in the fall, the curse became 
work being toil, turning work into something hard and difficult and suffering to make work hard. See, if your life's goal is to get wealthy enough to retire, to avoid working hard, to care for, build, or serve, then your life's work, your life's goal, is to avoid one of the very reasons God created you in the first place. In our parable, the end of the rich man's greed is a life of leisure. An end to the working, planting, threshing, plowing, harvesting, storing, and selling. The same heart of self-indulgence that bred the greed in this man's heart breeds contempt for a fundamental purpose of his existence, to work. Do we have that same contempt? Is our pleasure our purpose? Is rest in this life our goal? See, I recognize these are uncomfortable questions A lot of us are probably putting money into an IRA, into retirement, looking forward to a pension. However, don't hear me rebuking retirement accounts or calling retirement from a particular career. After all, Jesus doesn't rebuke wealth, does he? What does he rebuke? He rebukes greed, not the prosperity of the land, but this man's attitude, this man's heart. I would contend I would contend that the traditional Western idea of retirement is as unbiblical and foolish as this man's relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The yearning to retire at 35 and live a life of rest, that's you. This is you. A fool. I confess many, many times to have had that in my mind as a goal as a dream, as a daydream. Luke 12, verse 21. Jesus says this, so is the one that is a fool, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So we can continue by asking this question, where are you storing your treasure? There are only two ways for greed to be put to death. First, it dies with you. Like the rich fool, when you die, leaving behind a wealth of things, the cruel irony of in God we trust on all of our currency. Or it dies with Christ. We preach a different sermon to ourselves, one of need and helplessness, a soul longing for salvation in a world of suffering and pain, of struggle and heartache, a sermon of frailty and redemption, Weak vessels longing for hope, finding it in Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. We preach to our souls the sermon of the gospel. A gospel that makes sense not only in the light of eternity. A gospel that stores up for itself treasures in heaven and not treasures on earth. A gospel that doesn't promise rest for 40 or 50 years, but for 50,000 years a gospel that returns us to communion with our God, our creator and father. Now we spent all morning so far bemoaning the insidious nature of greed, warning against the temptations of excesses and wealth, rebuking the selfishness that propagates our greedy little hearts. That's good. We need those warnings. The harsh words of Jesus should penetrate us. 
But where's the hope? What should I do? What does it mean to be rich towards God? What does it mean to store up treasures in heaven? How can we use our relative wealth to guard against greed, worship our Savior, and love our neighbor? How can we put greed to death? Great questions. I'm glad you all asked. We're going to close with four ways to kill greed with our wealth. Number one, give to those in need. We're going to skip ahead in the Gospel of Luke to chapter 18. The story of the rich young ruler, a man who comes to Jesus asking what he needs to do to enter eternal life. Jesus discerns that this man loves his wealth and his money more than he loves the Lord. Look at Luke 18, verses 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, the rich man, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have, what? Treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Give, specifically give to those in need. The poor, the widows, the orphans, the broken, the disabled, the mentally ill, the oppressed, the homeless, the single mom struggling to pay rent. But make no mistake, There is difficult discernment to be had in giving to those in need. We must be thoughtful about how to define excesses and indulgence. Because at the time Jesus was speaking to this rich man to command and sell all he has to the poor, the needy and the poor were those that could literally not put food on their table for their children, who literally didn't have a place to live, where the blind and the lame were sitting at the temple gates completely reliant on the generosity of strangers. When we consider our circumstances, giving to the poor must be done with discernment. Because if we are giving to excess and relabeling it as a need, we're moving the goalpost on abundance and therefore moving the goalpost on greed. We end up contributing to the masking and justification of greed. Every believer that lives in the developed world needs to assess their excesses for this reason, that we would not be excusing and justifying that which Jesus rebukes. The second way we could store up treasures in heaven with our material things is to share our gifts. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes in the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Eat, drink, and be merry to the glory of God, Solomon says, but don't do it alone. (laughs) Share the enjoyment that God has given you. Open your home to your church family. Break bread with your neighbors, making them your favorite meal so that you can together enjoy taste. Lend your car to the college student that needs it. Be quick to offer that sick new truck when someone needs help moving. Share the gifts that God has given you. But most importantly, model God-glorifying enjoyment of these gifts. When you're thanked for your generosity, Credit the one to whom that gratitude is actually due. Use these gifts as opportunities to reflect on how much better heaven's going to be. Or to share the gospel. Or to encourage someone that's having a hard time seeing God's goodness. 
So you don't think about these pleasured gifts as yours because they're not. They're the Lord's. Be thoughtful and thankful. What you have is not your own. The third way to use our wealth to kill greed is to give to missions. Around five or six times in First and Second Corinthians, Paul talks about how he and other gospel laborers are reliant on the generosity and funds of the brothers and sisters in the faith to support the work of the gospel going through the world. There were many problems in this Corinthian church, and Paul addresses one of them in this letters, and that is their stinginess, their reluctance to give, their reluctance to be generous. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 3. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace that God has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord. Today there are over 3.3 billion, 3.3 billion with a B, unreached people. Over 7,400 groups, people groups, that have not heard the gospel. See, not all Christians are charged with planting churches, learning languages, and evangelizing in places where you could be killed. But all Christians can at least, in part, participate in the very necessary work of funding the efforts of these gospel laborers. If we aren't ourselves going to go make disciples at the end of the earth, we can at least help, help in sending those that are. A case study in Iran, this is information from Operation World, 22 years ago, the number of Christians in Iran who were converted from Islam to Christianity was five, somewhere between 5,000 and 8,000. As of today, that number is estimated to be over 800,000. Even, possibly, a million. See, in those 20 years, more Iranians have come to know Jesus than in the previous 13 centuries. That is what missionaries and missionary dollars can do. Possibly a million souls that you and I are going to worship with for eternity. Talk about storing up treasure in heaven. If you want help in doing this, we have several missionaries in Europe and the Middle East who we support as a church. As Daniel said in the member booklet at the back, you can see them. But if you want help getting started, find an elder, hit the info desk, ask someone what testimony to the values, to the eternally minded values of a church, if all of its people gave to the work of the gospel across the world to unreached peoples. Fourth way, fourth and final way, that we can put greed to death with our wealth, is give more to your church. This is easier to say now that I'm not on staff, not as self-serving. Give more to your church. Again, Paul discusses finances with the wealthy Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 13 and 14. It says this, "Do Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple in the temple service, get their food from the temple. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaimed the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This is Paul's way of saying, pay your pastors and support the mission of the gospel going through Corinth. We should be doing the same for Missoula through Sovereign Hope Church. There are numerous ways that our church 
has been able to share the gospel, teach God's word, encourage the weak, provide needed relational and discipleship relief, counsel the hurting, teaching our children gospel truths, ministering on campus, sharing the gospel with students, participating in missions. We could go on and on and on. We want to be as faithful as possible with the money we have as a church. But I want to highlight one thing in particular, something that is incredible and beautiful. And it's kind of in line with the previous point of missions and sending. Sovereign Hope is the pastors and the members, that is us. We have a vision for teaching, training, and sending. We want to be a church whose gospel influence moves beyond these walls, beyond the city limits, into our greater area and beyond. Clear fruit of this vision for teaching and training is the number of preachers at this church. Just a couple of years ago, the preaching roster was basically Tyler and a couple of elders in a pinch when needed. That number, basically one, has quadrupled in a short couple of years. Daniel, Johnny, Jonathan, and myself, with Paul Chang champing at the bit to get up here. He's already preached at other churches in Missoula. Five additional men who on any given week can preach the gospel to our body and bless other churches in Missoula. This is abnormal. This is rare. We're the ones that get called to fill the pulpit when it's needed because we have what Johnny calls a bench. Churches two or three times our size don't have that. The people that have been giving to see that we could be trained are making this impact in Missoula. So we have four practical ways to spend our excess to kill greed to the glory of God. So beware and be on guard. Let not greed grip your heart tighter than Jesus. Seek the riches of the kingdom of God and not the riches of the kingdom of this world. For this world fades, but his does not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so, so much for the clarity of your word. We thank you that you speak to hard things, that we might wrestle and contend with our sin and our sinful proclivities. Holy Spirit, help us to wrestle with our justifications, our hidings, and the ways that we neglect our sin and ignore it. Jesus, help us in this vastly wealthy world Help us to use all that you've given us to glorify you. Let us not be gripped by greed, but by the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. We love you. We need your help. In your name we pray.